Thursday evening, um, our two boys, um, Timothy, the older one, he was away on a school trip. So we only had Nathaniel at home. Nathaniel's eight. And miraculously, Nathaniel had managed to save up some money from his birthday that was back in May. So we decided that we'd go out to the Trafford Centre. Who likes going out to the Trafford Centre? A few hands going up, a few people grimacing. Well, I only cope with the Trafford Centre if we go late in the evening, so we went. And we ended up going into this shop, which is where Nathaniel wants to go. Anyone been in there? Build-A-Bear. Yeah? It's a very, very exciting shop. Because you go in, and the aim of the shop is that at the end of it, you will end up with, well, it does what it says on the tin, a bear of some description. But it's no ordinary way of buying a bear. You have to go through an eight-point program. Sounds a bit like a self-help book. So first of all, you go in, you choose the bear that you want. But it's just the, I don't know what you call it, the skin, the shell, what would you call it? The outer part of the bear anyway. So first of all, you, you do that. You then get to choose whether you want to put something in it that makes this bear speak. So you can put a heart in it that give, makes it speak. You then get to, to stuff it full of all the stuffing that goes inside. And you put your foot on a pedal and all this stuffing goes in and you can have the bear exactly how you want it. Then somebody stitches the bear up for you. Then it gets fluffed up with a special machine that makes it look good. Then you get to accessorize your bear. That costs you extra, by the way. So you can put various clothes on it or or different things. Then you go to a computer. You scan the label on the bear and you give the bear a name. And then you go and pay. (laughs) After all that, do you want to see what we came out with? Here we go. We went for the box. You could have a bag, but the bag cost, the bag cost three pounds. The box was free. <laughs> so here you go. That, that, after 50 minutes, that is what we came out with. You can play with that later if you want to. I'll leave it there. What's his name? Donnie, I think. I wanted to call it something else, but Nathaniel wouldn't have any. Most times, in my experience of life, when you go and you go to buy a teddy bear, you go in, you pick it off the shelf, and you walk out. Build-A-Bear have taken this to a totally new level. But I, wonder, I was wondering, as I was going around this place, how much of it is actually about the bear, and how much is about the experience? Just a sales pitch, isn't it? You take part in what looks like you're building a bear, and they can charge you probably £10 more for the bear than they would do if you didn't. A couple of years ago, I was talking to a church leader, And this person said this. He said their aim as a church was to make worship on a Sunday the best possible worship experience. And he went through what this meant for them. And he said, the moment you get in the car park, you will be welcomed by somebody who will lead you into your car parking space. You'll then get to the front door and you'll have a regulation handshake, which will be warm and not too warm, but it'll be regulated. You'll then get placed in your seats, well not literally placed, but you know what I mean, you'll be um, guided to a seat in the auditorium, you'll sit down, you'll then um, be presented with the most pleasant, uplifting music the church can provide, through the best possible speakers on the walls, then you'll have the sermon which will be preached through a, a mic, one, you know one of these kind of sort of Britney Spears type mics, you'll then have the best tea and coffee at the end of the service, a regulated handshake to go out, and you will go home. Is that what worship and encountering God is about? 
I don't know if anyone's read this book by a chap called John Drain, called The McDonaldization of the Church. It's a bit of a dense book, but it's actually a really good one. And he talks out about how often contemporary church is driven by regulating worship experience. The adoration of God becomes something that we, we sort of form from start to finish. And it's something, experience is something in life that we want more and more and more of, isn't it? The CEO of Debenhams wrote this week, said, people are stopping buying so many new clothes because they're spending their money on experiences. They want to go out for meals, they want to go out for concerts, whatever it is. Experience is the big thing. Well, this morning, we're looking at adoration in worship. This is the the Greek word um, that we're really looking at this morning. If you were here last week, we were talking about there are four different words for worship in the New Testament. This one, proskuneo, is the one that's used the most. It's used 54 times, right the way through the New Testament. It's used um, as the wise men come and they, they worship the baby Jesus. That's the word that's used. They pay homage to Jesus. It's used as um, the disciples worship Jesus when he's calmed the storm. It's used again when the disciples worship Jesus at the resurrection. The word literally means to kiss, to kneel, to pay homage to the person you're worshipping. If you were here last week, we were looking at um, worship as imitation from Romans 12. And how, you know, if if we want to be worshippers of Jesus, it has to resonate with our whole life experience. I was talking to somebody a few years ago, and this person was a really mature Christian, and they, they said something along these lines. They said, actually, lifestyle worship is all that matters to God. It doesn't matter really what you sing. It doesn't matter what you say with your mouth. It's just the living it out that matters. But you see, as we get into the scriptures, those two things, what we say, what we sing, the actions of worship have to go hand in hand with our lifestyle. You can't do one without the other. You can't say I'm living for Jesus and then not adoring him. And you can't adore him and not live for him. These two things have to go hand in hand. If we're living for Jesus today, we'll want to tell people that we're doing it. We'll want to declare who God is and tell of the wonders that he's done and speak about him and sing about him. I told Rachel I was going to pick on her this morning, so now's your moment for being picked on. But Darren and Rachel got married um, a couple of weeks ago. And at their wedding, it was a brilliant event. And there were the two of them stood there, loved, loving each other. And they weren't embarrassed. Darren may have been blubbing a little bit, but that wasn't embarrassment. (laughs) Because they want to declare what is a truth, that they love one another. Adoration is about declaring a truth of what God has done. If we love God, it will find outlet in our words. If we want to worship Jesus, we'll want to sing about it. If we want to praise God, we will write poems, or we will draw art, or we will do dance, or whatever it is that comes naturally to us to express our worship. So encounter. That's what we're going to be looking at for some of this morning. Is adoration worship simply about experience? Or is it something rather deeper than that? Is experience and encounter, is it the same thing, or... Should we be expecting something deeper than just a nice warm glow when we come and we worship God together? Well, I want to suggest this this morning. Adoration is a heartfelt response, not to an experience, but to an encounter with the living God. 
I'm going to say that again. Adoration is a heartfelt response to an encounter with the living God. See, the problem with just experience is experience is a bit of a fickle friend. You know, if I was to go to that church where everything had to be wonderful every Sunday and it all had to be happy and it was just full of joy whenever you went there and it was a, it was a kind of regulated experience, I don't know that would cut it, really, if I was going through a period of dark pain. I don't know whether that kind of adoration would really cut it when life was actually really difficult. I don't know if I was you know, suffering from some mental illness or some physical illness, whether I'd actually be able to go in that place and wrestle with God and actually come and still want to worship, but actually bring reality into God's presence. We can have great experiences of worship, of the trappings of worship, without ever encountering God himself. When I was at school, um, we used to, once a year, have to do these Founders' Day services. And they were in a great big church in Stockport. And we used to have this enormous pipe organ was played. We'd have a great big brass group. We'd have um, big choirs singing all this very formal church music. And it was all led by an atheist. There was the trappings, the experience, the noise of worship. But there was no expectation of encounter. There was no encounter because the person who was leading it didn't even believe that there was a God. So you see, experience can be a very, very fickle friend. Adoration is not about being happy and contented, but it's worshipping and encountering the living God, however and wherever we are. Hopefully this morning as you came in, you got um, past the handout sheet. You may want to pick that up now. Sorry, we're going a bit old school again this morning, but because we're using three main different readings, I thought it might be easier than flicking through the Bible back in tea. So these are three different accounts of encounters with the living God that take place in different parts of the Bible. One in the Old Testament, two in the New Testament, and three very different encounters. The first one, I'm going to read it from 1 Kings chapter 8. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. While the whole assembly of Israel was standing there, the king turned around and blessed them. He said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his own hands has fulfilled what he promised with his own mouth to my father David. If you know the context of that passage at all, that passage comes at the culmination of the work on the temple. The, the previous chapters of the book of 1, King, of all 1 Kings have been about Solomon building the temple, all these different materials that have been used, the amount of people it took to build it. And also there was a promise given by God that when the temple was built, if the people would be obedient to him, his presence would dwell there forever. What we see here is a fulfillment of God's promise. Any encounter with God will always be a fulfillment of God's promises backed up in Scripture. Yet we won't encounter God in ways that aren't in line with Scripture. But look at what happens in here. The glory of the Lord fills the temple to such an extent that the priest can't go in. I don't know what that would have been like. No idea what that would have been like, but pretty awesome, I would imagine. You know, not being able to physically minister because of the encounter of God. Theologians call this experience here what is a theophany. 
theos meaning God. And it's an experience directly of the living God. Look at the result, verse 15. Praise be to the Lord. You have an encounter with God, and it leads to words of adoration. You have an experience of the, of, not, of the a living God in their midst, and it leads people to this kind of worship. Now, if we read that passage in isolation, and don't read what happens to Solomon, I would be expecting that that experience alone would be enough to keep Solomon going, that he'd somehow think, right, I've encountered God, this is what God is like, I'm going to live, my adoration is going to link up with my imitation of God, and the rest of my life I will give over to following him. If you know the account of 1 Kings, that isn't what happens. Because Solomon is still a person who has weaknesses. And what happens? You get a bit further on in Solomon chapter 11. And Solomon, by this time, he'd been given wisdom, he's rich, he's got the temple, the reality of God's presence... And what does he do? He gets distracted by women. Literally, hundreds of women. Who he takes as his wives and concubines, and it says in 11 verse 3, they turned his heart away from the Lord. And he ends up worshipping other gods. Solomon had the encounter, he had the adoration, but it didn't link up with his imitation. Didn't link up. Wasn't enough just at that point. Now, I wonder today, if you encounter the living God in your life, is it leading you to a walk of holiness? Is it leading you to a lifestyle of imitating Jesus? It can be so so easy to sing enthusiastically, but then actually not live it out. Tozer, I don't know if anyone's ever read the book about worship by A.W. Tozer. He says this, this is really cutting. He says, Christians don't often tell lies, they just go about singing them. You, know, you think, how many times have I stood and sung a worship song about, you know, take my life and let it be. I will offer my life. I will do all these things. And actually, the reality is my heart is a long way from that. What I always do, this might be something you, you think about, is when you sing in those, singing them as a prayer of intent. You know, God, this is where I want to be. Or God, help me to want to be where I want to be. However far back you need to be. But it's so easy to do. But it can be easy to do the opposite as well. To think, well, actually, I'm walking in discipleship, but somehow I can't find a voice for my adoration. And the best I can do is some kind of formalized assent to um, what God is saying and what God is on about. When I was 18, um, I was once part of a house group. And it was a good home group. We met every week. We did the things that home groups, small groups have done for years and years. We, we sang together, we prayed together, we ate biscuits together, and we did Bible study together. Not in that order. But there was one day when we were in that group, and we were singing a worship song. I can still remember it. I worship you, almighty God. There is none like you. Now, in terms of the worship experience that I mentioned at the beginning, this was nowhere. You know, there, there was no regulated handshake. There was nothing round it that was slick or anything like that. It was just a few believers meeting in a room together. There was this lady in the group who, by her own admission, couldn't sing. And I have to say, by our experience, she couldn't sing as well. (laughs) But in the middle of this singing of this song, she suddenly started to sing in a voice that I can only describe as angelic. I couldn't have written... I'm a musician. I couldn't understand the harmony she was singing. I couldn't have written it down. 
I couldn't explain what it was. I had no idea what it was. And we sat there at the end of the song as a small group and said, wow, somehow God has shown up. Somehow God has worked in that lady's voice and she has done what it says on the, one of those other readings, I think it's the Colossians one, we have experienced a song from the Spirit. A song from the Spirit. Now I look back at that and I think, what was going on there? As a group, we had encountered God in our midst. We had encountered God. Some of that group is still going on with God. Others have, have drifted away and are not. But I cannot deny what happened then. Because I was there. There were a dozen witnesses to that event. I can explain it biblically. That's all fine. What did, I real, what did I think that God was actually doing? Well, for me, I suppose it opened my eyes to really what is the heart of adoration. The worship isn't about dry formalism, but it's about encountering the risen Christ in our midst. It's not about seeking experience or generating human experience. It's not about hype. It's not about worship with human hands, but it's about seeking after the reality of the presence of God in the midst of his people about the work of the Holy Spirit. Is life always going to be full of those kind of encounters? Well, my experience would tell me no. That was the only time that I've experienced something in that kind of way. I've experienced God in many other ways in different situations since, and I'll talk about those. It might not be the norm, but God is God, and if he chooses to show up and manifest his glory, he will do. I want to move us on to a totally different type of encounter. Luke chapter 24, verse 28 to 30. This is the road to Emmaus. So it's just the end of the reading of that. So I'll just read these verses. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them, saying, oh, sorry, began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Totally different situation to the one in 1 Kings. This is two people walking down the road in the days after the crucifixion and the resurrection. They've heard um, the accounts of the women that say Jesus has risen from the dead. And they're talking about it. And Jesus sort of walks alongside them, but they don't know it's Jesus. It's kept from them who it is. And as they're walking, Jesus unpacks the scriptures to them. He opens up God's word to them. You know, of all the the accounts in in scripture that, that seem really, really exciting, if I could be at any one event, I sometimes think this is the one I'd like to be at, you know, how amazing to be doing a Bible study with Jesus. To be the one, the, have the one in your midst who can really explain it. You can really say, actually, well, this is what it's all about. Verse 31, Jesus disappears from their sight. And then look at verse 32. Were not our hearts burning within us as we talked with him on the road? As Jesus explained the scriptures, their hearts were literally burning. I don't know if you've ever been sat in a sermon or been there with your Bible or in a Bible study, and suddenly it's like God reveals something to you from his word. You encounter God in his word. 
If that happens to you, that is God. That is God speaking. That is an encounter, and we need to pray more and more that the Holy Spirit will illuminate, will bring light to his word, so that we encounter God through it. I was talking to to a friend literally a couple of weeks ago. This friend of mine is in his mid-twenties, and he's got a brother who's probably 19, 20, that sort of age. His brother had been sort of very scathing about my friend's um, conversion to being a Christian and wouldn't really have anything to do with it. So in the end, what he did was he said, I'm going to give you a Bible. Just read it, see what you think. So he went away, started reading the New Testament. A few weeks later, came back to his brother and said, I've read the Bible, and I know that Jesus died for my sin, and that he's risen again, and I've become a Christian. He didn't go on an Alpha course, didn't do anything else, wasn't, uh, nobody, no human being was involved. Just God encountering this person through his word. You know, the word of God is incredibly powerful. We must never underestimate the power of just simply reading God's word out. But, you know, just the one-off encounter is not enough. He now needs to get into the word. He needs to understand more and more about who God is. To drench himself and encounter God time and time again in the written word. Acts chapter 2. Again, a very different sort of encounter. This is the day of Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost came... They were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Then it goes on. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Pentecost is the time, if you like, the the birth of the church. It's where the Holy Spirit comes on the church for the first time. And it's a fulfillment, again, of what God has already said. Joel chapter 2, in those last days, I will pour out my spirit. And in fact, that's what Peter um, will preach from as, as that experience happens. But encounter with God here leads to transformation, leads to more people becoming worshippers. The immediate effect is that people praise. They praise God. They adore God in languages that they haven't learned. It leads to prophecy. It leads to preaching. It leads to tongues. And it leads to 3,000 people declaring their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We were in um, mid-Wales over the summer. And we were out walking one afternoon. And we were walking through these hills just on the edge of a village. And I was following a map, and there was a, you know, if you follow an ordnance survey map, you get the little cross where there's a church or a chapel. And I saw that we were coming up to this little chapel, and I was thinking, why on earth is this down this sort of overgrown lane? I wonder what it's doing here. But anyway, we got to this chapel, and it was derelict. It was starting to, to sort of fall down and collapse. So, never having really grown up, I had to go and investigate. So I went inside. This is what it was like. So you can see... The pulpit, I managed to get halfway up. It was a bit rotten, so I thought, I won't go any further. I might never have returned. And that was looking out into the main body of the church. Probably a a building that would have seated, what, 40 or 50, something like that? There's another view. You can see some strange-looking people peering in through the window there. (laughs) They didn't quite have the guts. I weren't allowed to come and follow me in. But what a sad scene. What a really, really sad scene. I couldn't find anything out about that building. I googled it. I couldn't find anything out about why it was there, 
when it had become derelict, who the original church was, what they, what sort of denomination or anything it was. So I'm guessing here, but I, I would imagine my guess isn't too far off the mark. That that building was built at a time when there were real worshippers in that area. People who adored Jesus. People who obviously thought that the Bible and preaching was significant. You can see the, the extent to which the pulpit fills almost the first half of the church. People who possibly joined the Welsh revivals, it was that sort of age, had had experiences, encounters with the living God. But actually over time, I wonder if things had got a bit cold. Their first love had gone. The adoration had slipped. And here you get the result, a decaying monument to a past faith. Sadly, our nation is filled with decaying monuments to past faith. Things that have been built to say, actually, we're, we're honoring God and we want to worship God here and we want to impact communities, only for them for the adoration to slip and for the, the faith to get formal and cold and then be abandoned altogether. You know, Pentecost was never meant to just be a one-off experience. It was never meant to be just a one-off encounter with God. It wasn't just that God started the, the firing gun on the church and said, right, you're on your own now. But the Holy Spirit has been and continues to be poured out upon the church. Ephesians 5, verse 18, it said, Don't fill yourself up on wine, getting drunk, which leads to wild living, but instead be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. The call of the church is to continually be filled with the Spirit. Now, that's not because we leak. You know, I've heard people say this sometimes. As Christians, we need continually filling, as if the Holy Spirit sort of leaks out of us. I never like the idea of God sort of you know, drifting away out of us. But actually, it's because, I believe it's because there's always more of God than we have yet to encounter. There is always more. You know, it's like when we open the Word, we have, there's always things that will stand out at us that we haven't seen before. There is always more of God. If we're to be a church of people who adore Jesus, we need the Holy Spirit today. We need the Holy Spirit tomorrow. We need the Holy Spirit until the day that Jesus returns. Our adoration is not complete if the Spirit of God is not moving amongst us. So let's look at drawing near. There's a a verse on the other side of the sheet from James that talks about this. You may be wondering that we've looked at worship for three weeks and we've not particularly looked at singing in worship. You may be thinking, why is that? I firmly believe that as Christians, we're called to be a singing people. The Old Testament, people sang. You know, the Psalms, many of them are sung, aren't they? You look at the openings of the Psalms, it says, set to the tune of whatever it is. Um, The New Testament church, they sung. God's people have always been a singing, noisy people. And singing encourages us, doesn't it? Singing enables us to declare truth about God. It gives space for the Holy Spirit to work in our midst. It enables us, as Ephesians 5 says, to encourage one another in song. And singing is part of the final pictures of Revelation, you know, where you get the images of heaven and praises, eternal praise, is being sung to God. But there's a danger for us, a very real danger, that if we start focusing in too much on music, we're back to Bilderberg. And we're back to that place of our own preferences and trying to generate experience rather than seeking encounter. 
If I asked you today what your musical tastes were, I can guarantee that there won't be two people in this room who have the same musical tastes. We went to a concert last night, and I really enjoyed it. Claire thought it was okay. Nathaniel tolerated it, and Timothy said it was the most boring thing he'd ever sat through. (laughs) We're all different, aren't we? Adoration is not based on musical preference. Adoration is based on encountering God and responding to him. If we start to make music the weather vane of our worship, we start to put experience and the things that we like and our preferences above actually having a heart that desires to adore the risen Christ. Adoration is about Jesus. Adoration is rooted in encounter. Encounter that comes into the heartache of our fallen world. You know, some of the most profound times that I've spent with the Lord have not actually been when I've been singing praise to him. There have been great times, and I don't want to take away from that at all. But actually, sometimes it's been when I've had to repent of something that I've I've really messed up. Other times it's been when I've been waiting on test results, you know, for some health issue, and I've been, you know, desperate for God at that point. Other times it's been when, you know, it's just been a dark night of the soul. You know you go through those times when, it, when it's dark. And it's actually there that you encounter God in that place. I was reading a blog on Friday from Noel Richards. I don't know if you've, if you've come across Noel Richards, worship leader. Um, possibly one of the grandfather generation now of worship leaders. Wrote songs in the 70s and 80s primarily. All Heaven Declares, you know that song? You laid aside your majesty, he has risen. Quite a number of songs that we probably still sing. And he was challenging the church on Friday, the wider church, to think about what we sing. Now, you can do what you want with this. You can disagree with him. I won't be offended if you disagree with him, but I'm just going to read this. Do we prefer the blandness of easy listening, soft rock platitudes that make us feel good when we are caught up in the emotion of a Sunday morning experience? The result of this is that we are now losing sight of the fact that we have so much more to write about than a God who likes some kind of genie mysteriously appears in our presence and gives us a nice warm glow on the inside. A God who constantly provides the faithful in the Western world with new cars, promotions, new jobs and bigger homes. But bad luck if you live in a developing nation. Are we prepared to pioneer once again, to make room for worship songwriting that acknowledges that life can be hard, painful and full of disappointment for most of us? We need songs that will strengthen our faith without resorting to the trite, cliched phrases. We need songs that help us to find God as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Earthy, gritty songs that resonate with our journey, our doubts and our fears. Songs that deals with the issues of terrorism, the refugee, globalization, consumerism, and so much more. Go on his website, have a look at his blog. The rest of it is really quite poignant as well. You know, Encounter is not about coming to God, putting on the fake smile. It's not about coming to God and saying everything has to feel like it's okay. It's about actually the reality of God. Seeking God wherever we are. Whether we're a Christian in war-torn Syria who risks our very life if we adore Jesus. Whether it's somebody in North Korea. Whether it's somebody in our relatively comfortable Western world. James 4. Come near to God and he will come near to you. He's the God of the faithful promise, the God of the encounter. An encounter leads to adoration. Do you make time for drawing near to God? Do I make time? 
I wonder perhaps sometimes if we can get our priorities a bit skew here. Look at what he says in Hebrews 10. Let's not give up meeting together. Yes, of course, we can encounter God in the quiet place. We can adore him while we're cutting the grass or doing whatever we do. But actually, those three passages that we've looked at this morning, they all take place in community. They all take place with other people. It's that time when people encounter God. When we draw near, when we actively seek the Lord as he draws near to us. Because when we encounter, we adore. When there is the reality of God, we worship and we praise him. And our adoration goes hand in hand with our imitation. So I just want to leave you really with a question. Do you want to be the type of person who has adoration and imitation that go hand in hand? That we desire encounter with the risen Christ who transforms us and leads us into his presence? Do we want to be that type of church who worships in that kind of way? Jesus simply says, draw near, and he will draw near to us. Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, you call us to draw near. Thank you that the promise of Scripture is that as we draw near to you, you draw near to us. Lord, I want to pray that you will help us as as individuals, as a church, to make time to seek you in prayer, to seek you in song, to seek you in your word. Lord, as we've looked at all those times in the Bible when people met with you, they worshipped. They came and they adored. And Lord, I just want to pray that we will be people of adoration this morning. That we will see what you have done. We will see that you died on the sin for our, you died on the cross for our sin. You rose again in glory and you are returning. And Lord, that as we encounter you, we will come, we will declare your majesty, your honor, and your praise. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.